I, I started to have uh, an experience that was a repeat of what was happening when I was on campus. But, but this time it was within a different context, but same things, finding beautiful, smart, well-dressed, well-connected women who were suffering from hidden insecurities, broken sense of self, they were in emotionally unavailable affairs, they were mistreated by the men in their lives. Uh-uh. And I'll be like, are you joking? Someone has beautiful, what? What's going on? My father told me life is not a big this is Origins Africa podcast, where we explore the origin stories of people who have made and are making their dreams come true, asking the what, the when, the how, and the why. I'm Oshaya, and on this episode, the concluding part of our chat with Debola Dejikoromi, fondly called DDK, we talk about Immerse Coaching Company starting as an experiment, the birth of Ideation Hub Africa, DDK's general life lessons, mistakes, and challenges, as well as how she's been able to manage all her responsibilities. On the last episode, we explored DDK's growing up years and how intentional her parents were in programming her to expect to succeed in life. We explored her insecurities and weaknesses, dreams, as well as the birth and evolution of the Deborah Women Initiative, coupled with mistakes made along the way. But DDK is also a learning and development expert, a coach, as well as a social development expert. How did all this come about? While at Obafemi Aoluwa University studying estate management, DDK had an awakening in her third year. First, while I was on campus and I'd started um, being in estate management and I saw that, uh, and I say this, you know, tongue in cheek, <laughs> estate management is an excellent, excellent program, but, as I got to my third year, it started to become clear to me that how I really wanted to make a difference as far as the real estate, housing, construction space was concerned was not how I was being prepared with the program. Um, I started to see that I wanted to be able to influence the decisions that were being made in that space. So it was more policy oriented and it was more, um, yeah, that's the word policy because I wanted to see what the government could do differently to provide affordable housing. So I saw that I was in the, I wasn't in the macro dimension. I was in the micro dimension. Um, I didn't want to be collecting anybody's house rent. I didn't want to be uh, doing valuation for property. I didn't want to be uh, doing tenancy agreements. For sure not. That was not what, (laughs) so by my third year, I started to see a misalignment between the burden that I carried for that space um, and how I was being prepared. Then by the time I got into my um, IT, what we call the industrial attachment in my third and fourth year, my God, it was now super setting. I was like, nah, because during my IT, I was just being taken around to get rents from places where we've been caretakers, you know, and I was like, no, I one billion percent know that this is not my life. One billion percent, I knew that, right? And so, yeah, I started to say to myself, I, I for sure won't be doing this. However, by the time I was in my final year, I did not know how to plug into any policy dimension. It wasn't apparent. It wasn't clear. And, you know, because I was also just circling around multiple gifts, I remember sharing with my father and it was like, if this isn't it, it might be what leads you to it. So just stay open, explore your interests, and let's see where it takes you. So I remember that um, Mrs. Longe, Mrs. Bisola Longe had come to my school to share, to teach, 
many years uh, before my final year. Actually, she was the one who spoke um, when I was in my second year and held the first conference for Club Empower. And from that point on, I'd stayed in touch with her. She had taken me through career assessments, helping me know where my strengths were, when I would share with her that I didn't know how to work with estate, this estate management degree. And one of the things that had come out was Aside this interest for policy, you obviously are also really keen about uh, leadership development, helping people, you know, become their best selves. And that's what you've been doing with Club Empower. But you now need to, so she's basically saying, what if you could set this same vision that you have for DIW at that time, uh, God's Good Girls Network within a corporate context. Wouldn't you feel like you are extending just what is your passion, but within a corporate context, you can help people grow through training. You can recruit the right guys. You can assess performance and all of that. And it sounded great to me. And it just made sense um, after my my service year being with Covenant University to then just jump on the offer to become a HR um, analyst with her organization. And that's that's what I did. Okay. And I know you did that for about a year, doing different areas of each other. You decided to move to Philips Consulting to specialize in learning and development. How do you exactly. know that that was the area of each other you wanted to specialize in and you immediately Thank went you. for that? Accurate. Yes. Yes. Accurate. So, um, when I was with, uh, human capacity development consultants, um, no, I, I wasn't there for a year. I was there for over a year, I think maybe about 18 months, but the gig was by the time I got into, um, HCDC, I was gifted with the opportunity to work across different, um, uh, specialties within the HR function. So I did recruitment, training and development, competency management, um, um, uh, co- compensation and benefits, you know, salaries and all of those things, you know, different things across that broad, um, that broad function. But I started to find that every time I stepped into a room facilitating, because that was again, one of the biggest gifts that Mrs. Longer gave me. And she's still my mentor till today. She's actually become my mother. Um, you know, every time I stepped into class, I would, I would feel a feeling <laughs> that I don't feel anywhere else. So it's back again to this me speaking and loving it. So just like, my God, this is so connected to my core. And I remember that the feedback she would get from banks and all companies where I was going to train um, under HCDC, she would be so blown away. She's like, they've never even said these kind of things to us before. People would be like, who is she? I would hold the class captive for hours. And it's always funny because before I come in, before the class starts, the moment I step in, you have these older employees sort of looking at me like, are you joking? Is this really the person who is going, are you joking with us? And I will be smiling internally because I'm like, just give me 30 minutes and then you'll be sold out on me. And I, I would come up with this uh, uh, learn by play activities really understanding that when you create an atmosphere of human camaraderie, adult learners really become engaged and they facilitate their own outcomes in the learning experience. And I knew these things, not so much really by reading anything, but by just observing. And I created my own case studies, my own games, team activities. I formed things from my mind and they worked. So, I mean, by then it was so clear that I want to do this more. It was just something you were naturally gifted at. I'm telling you, I was such a natural, gosh. Interesting. I mean, such a natural, so much so that we would train for, we had telecoms companies we're training for. And when they wrote back to say, we want to train another batch, they will be specifying. And we wanted to be the Debola person that taught the last batch because they haven't stopped talking about it in the organization. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's one of those high lights of my giftings that I still draw on with all my different expressions. If you put me in a room, I think I I even do better in smaller rooms than maybe large conferences. If you put me in a room with 15 or 30 people, your organization can never recover from me. (laughs) Yes. So it was from that point that I started to see that for sure, this was something I wanted to specialize in. Um, 
and, and let me let me tell you the funny thing. When there was an opening with Philips Consulting, and I wanted to jump on it because, well, I wanted, uh, you know, an organization that I could also grow with and that was maybe a lot more structured and larger. And yeah, basically those type of desires, I had the support and the blessing of Mrs. Lunga saying, go for it and let me see you fly. When I was, when the opening came, it was just an opening for an associate, an associate consultant, or maybe I can, no, it wouldn't be an associate, maybe a junior associate or something. And it, it wasn't a specific offer within a specialization. Do you see? It was just core consulting, but I said, let me go for it. After my interviews, we had the final presentation with the chairman um, of the business, Felicia Phillips. And after I made my presentation, you know, all the the heads were sort of trying to get me into their own team saying, she's coming to strategy. She's coming to performance management. Mr. Felicia Phillips stood up and said, this girl is going to learning. This is the person I need in my classroom. <laughs> he said it by himself. It was like, for sure, she's going to learning and development. Like, see how you held us captive. In fact, light went off that day. And I, I finished my presentation for the next about 15 minutes without a slide. And when the light came on, he said, can you go back to your slides? I just want to see how close you were. He was in awe because it was almost word for word. <laughs> you know, yeah. So he said, she's going to learn it. And that was a further confirmation that, yeah, this is where my superpower is. And that's exactly what I did. So uh, how, what were the key lessons you learned in Philips Consulting and how did it shape who you've become today? Uh, key lessons in Philips Consulting. Number one, you are actually better than you give yourself credit for. One of the gifts that um, institutions, multinationals and uh, you know big corporations can give to you is to affirm, confirm, as well as give credibility to your giftings, right? Because you you step into that kind of system and you sort of start to feel like if they see what I carry and they're this effusive about it, they're so blown away by it, they've seen a lot. They have a methodology that works. They've tested frameworks for what delivers success or otherwise, right? So it sort of deepens your sense of credibility, your sense of value, and the reason it's important for everyone to have experiences in their lives where um, a formidable institution puts a stamp on you is not because you didn't believe in yourself before. It's just because we all need those, you know, womb opening encounters that make you irrefutably and irrevocably convinced about what you can give the world. I also try to be that for people, even though I'm not like a multinational <laughs> in that sense, but I believe I'm a thought leader and I have a good degree of a growing global experience and exposure. So everyone who comes in contact with me, I feel like I am obliged never to flatter you, but if I see gold, I'm going to hammer on it. I'm going to continue to let you see that it's true so that when you leave me, you, it stays with you. The reason it has to stay with you is that actually execution is delivered primarily from the context of confidence. Many times when you find a person who is, a, um, who is such an activator, who is such an executor, who gets their work done, it's drawn not from, it's, it's not even first competence, it's first confidence. Because the moment you feel assured that I got this, I got this, there's a way you work and there's a way your work responds back to you. So that's the first big thing Philips gave to me. I got into this system that had brilliant and still has extremely bright minds and they would just continue to gush about me. Whenever I was in class, people would come to start to peep at the glass doors. I remember clearly because they'd just be like, what is making everyone laugh and scream in this class that they are distracting us like this? And you'd have people who just come sometimes sit in the room and you'll be like, no, Debola, you are something else. You're a natural. What? You know, and I would have Mr. Philippe say the same, like, I was peeping at your class. You are so good. I mean, look at me. I was just in my early 20s. This was a man in his 50s, 60s, and, you know, who's seen it all in the consulting arena and then will say that about me. It was important 
And it was a fundamental part of growing such a sense of self-assurance that is not pride, but that is respect for what I carry. So it did that for me. Um, the second thing that it did for me was it helped me find the balance between natural giftings and the structure, the system, the rigor and the discipline that ensures that you're not a, you're not just puff without substance. Do you see? Because there are parts of the learning and development um, pathway or career that is not just talking in class. It's not just facilitation. Learning and development is a lot more robust. So there are parts of it that is very data-driven. There are parts of it where you're using competency-based approach to create learning content that delivers outcomes. There are parts of it that are connected to quality assurance. There are parts of it that are connected to using customer insights and feedback to regroup and represent your learning materials. They are part of it that's connected to you. Use brilliant speaker to becoming a learning professional um, that can deploy end-to-end a learning strategy for the organizations that I, get, I engage. Um, so that was important. The third thing was just um, the diligence of waking up early <laughs> every morning, I tell you, which is maybe what I hated the most about every of my paid jobs. And it's not like I like my sleep that much, but I'm naturally wired to operate in a free-flowing, self-governed system. So, yeah, I feel like I had to learn the hard one, getting up really early, getting to work right on time, clocking in, uh, which as the kind of systems I've now carried into my own life as an entrepreneur, even though I run my own businesses now, I'm still super diligent. My husband still wonders sometimes, you know, why are you walk into the morning? Why are you dressed up like you're going to work? I'm like, because I'm going to work. I'll wake <laughs> up. Yeah, I'll dress nice and do makeup. And I will start my day's work. And I'm going to put off my phone in the hours when I'm, I'm in deep work. It's, I mean, yeah, I will do that. And you can't reach me. There's not like I call you, you didn't pick. I wouldn't even put on the phone, you see, and I will feel my own time sheets alongside my staff members. You know, they do it. I do it too. I will submit my own reports of what I did in the month. Yeah. And I've seen it change even my revenue and what I've been able to, to, you know, to uh, build with my businesses. Okay. Um, so in 2014, you started Emers coaching company and I know you had mentioned that it started as an experiment. Could you talk about that? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so Immerse started just because, again, as I stepped into, um, particularly as I stepped into, you know, the human resource function and I started to grow my career gradually as a newcomer in the corporate arena, I, I started to have uh, an experience that was a repeat of what was happening when I was on campus. But, but this time it was within a different context, but same things, finding beautiful, smart, well-dressed, well-connected women who were suffering from heeding insecurities, broken sense of self, they were in emotionally unavailable affairs. They were mistreated by the men in their lives. Uh-uh. And I'll be like, are you joking? Someone has beautiful, what? What's going on? You know, and they would just be coming to me like Nicodemus in the night saying, they were like, I, I just didn't talk to you. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm just doing silly things. I'm goofing. You know, I shouldn't be with this person. They're mistreating me. They were giving money to men. Uh-uh. I'll be like, what money? My money? My money cannot enter anybody. <laughs> anybody's handle. That what? You know, and it started to, so I started to do this one-on-one coaching and I didn't know it was been coaching. And I will by myself create these clarity journals, assessment materials from scratch. I'll send it to them by email and say, hey, take some time this weekend, answer each of these questions. And then when they get back to me, I will analyze. I will be like, mm, this is what's going on. This, and this was something you developed yourself. I'm telling you. And I would just, I, you know, and I would get on this call with my own credits. They will call me back. They'll be like, let me, let me call you. I will be like, well, this is what I can see. Did you go through this in your childhood? Did you feel like you were not loved enough? Were you always seeking attention? Yes. They'll be crying on the phone. I'll be like, how do I even know this thing? How, how come, <laughs> you know? And I'll say, oh, these are things you have to do. Then I will research resources. This is the book you must read. I will even help them create it into a reading plan. Week one, you read this chapter, answer these questions. Tell me what you think. 
and that has started to happen. Had you maybe read books or watched some videos that helped unconsciously? Um, The closest to it, not a book for sure. The closest to it might be what Bisola Lunge herself was doing to me. Maybe that was what it is. Oh, okay. Actively engaging at this level. So I recognize there's a good part of it that was just innate. But some of the uh, methodologies I was deploying in terms of read this book, come back to me. I noticed this. This can be a possible reason. Using active questioning, the power of probing. That was how, and that is still how Mrs. Longer is with me. You know, when we're in the car together, she would just, you know, begin to probe me. You know, you came into, you know, yeah, so she just developed maybe what was a framework for emotional intelligence, which started to impact on how I was engaging others. But I took oh, okay. it to a level. But yes, that might be a big part of how I started to use that skill. So I use it for colleagues at work, you know, and they started to now send friends to me. And then I, I started seeing that these guys were getting results for real. They'll come back, they'll be like, Dibble, I've, I've ended that relationship. You know, Dibble, I've been able to save this amount of money. I'm not like a, I'm not a spendthrift again. This is changing. That is changing. I feel better. I've been able to forgive my mom. I had a conversation about it. I sent a gift. Wow. I was just like, what? People's lives are changing. This thing. So there's a methodology around how we can really transform our own lives. And I saw that I was using it for myself as well areas where I had character flaws, I was paying attention more, I was studying, I was, you know, um, also testing and appraising the changes. Yeah, and by 2013, I held a first, I think in 2012, sorry, I held a first coaching seminar. It wasn't even called coaching, it was just called um, Life Academy for Women, like the School of Life, you know. (laughs) And I had, I think, 30 women in the room. I printed a lot of those assessments I'd been creating and people were crying so much. I was like, what mess have I created? Why are people crying like this? It was like they were exhuming, you know, childhood trauma. And when we were done, we were there from about 9 to 7.30 p.m., because I was going through each person's work, giving direct feedback. We were using personality diagnostics. People were saying, how, how can someone even know me like this? Things I've never been able to say about myself. And then we came up with this action plan. Things I have to start, things I have to stop, and things I have to sustain. And I remember that people left saying, I feel, I feel powerful that I can change my life. Right? And by 2013, I had then put these things together in like a full, one big full document where it was almost like it was over 40 pages. If this is what you're going through, this is the journal you can use. If this was, and I created that. By the end of 2012 into 13, I created this self-evaluation document um, that I sent out by email and you know, people down, I think there were over 2,000 downloads back then. And that was when the light broke in my mind that, okay, this is a real need. And yeah, so in 2013, I had a series of paid events still called Life Academy for Women. By 2014 was when I then created Immerse, which was meant to be drawing from feedback. The fact that one one day meetings were not going to get me deep enough to the root issues. And that was when we created 30 Days, 30 Questions, where I worked one-on-one with 20 women who I was asking questions every day and getting the responses. And from that, we were able to create a life action plan for them. So that's how Immerse started. I was just checking out if this thing could work. <laughs> and yeah, obviously. And it really is working. Yeah. As well. Then in 2014, you pivoted to the social sector where you joined mm-hmm. the Rec Charles Foundation. Mm-hmm. So why did you switch? Yeah, so remember that I had said, you know, what came up for me from being in school was I wanted to be more in the policy space. And I, I, I saw that if we were not impacting and influencing what the government was doing, we we're still so away from really creating a change for the vulnerable population and those at the bottom of the pyramid. And I continued to, you know, read research. Even when I joined Philips, I was still just really keen about 
what what the international development space looks like. And, you know, these things were not clear-cut parts at, at the time. It's just in the last three years that it really started to become clear what it took to become a social innovator, an impact-driven entrepreneur. What, if you wanted to go into the civil society, it wasn't that clear. You know, there weren't a lot of materials that could really lead you, especially in Nigeria. And I remember one of the earliest people I had as I was reading, I'd seen in those earlier years, 2012, 2013, was these two people, um, Ine Onok, who has become Ine Abimbola, and Indidi Uneli. Those were the two people I'd seen. And I was reading one of Indidi's interviews, and she had, or something she had written, and she referenced um, the, the social sector management program at Pan Atlantic University as a great way to prepare for um, working the social sector. I said, okay, I'm going to do this. This is the only thing I've heard in Nigeria right now that can help me prepare for my passion for that space, policy development, sustainable development, and all of those things. So yeah, while I was in Philips, I still continued to carry this passion. It was growing. I'd started to volunteer with a number of NGOs. I was getting more interested in the space. And I started to say to myself, maybe there's a merger between my learning and development passion and what I want to do in the policy space, what I wanted to do in the social sector. Don't forget my evolution was still on and it's still on actually where I'm just, because I'm a multi-gifted person. So I had a unique type of challenge where I'm trying to see what is the intersection between all these crazy ideas in my mind. Um, so yeah, by 2014, uh, by 2013, I had read about what NDD recommended for social entrepreneurs. So I joined that program. Um, I was funded by the Coca-Cola Foundation. I joined that program in Pan Atlantic University. It was like an executive uh, postgraduate diploma. And it was for nine months. I was very excited about it. I started to meet people in the space. And I started to crystallize exactly how I wanted to work in the space. How did you, you get know, the funding from Coca-Cola? Um, so Coca-Cola Foundation was funding this project, uh, this uh, program directly. If you see oh, what I okay. Mean. okay. So, yeah, when you write to join the program, they ask you if you would like to access the funding. If you say you'd like to access the funding, they set up a recruitment procedure where you were interviewed to determine if you were um, eligible. And if you passed that recruitment process, you then got the funding from Coca-Cola Foundation. And that's what happened. I went through the process and I was thankfully selected. Okay, then you did that. And from there, was that when you joined the Rectiles Foundation? Exactly. That was when I quit my Philips consulting job. But a great thing happened. Even though I quit, I was retained on a consultant level. So I was still getting That's to great. Dream yes. Well, because they weren't going to let the the the, the clients were still like, Where's Debola? Basically. <laughs> so I continued to train with Philips, you know, and I was earning good. And that was really, really a good part of that transition. It made it easy because I had to take a pay cut to step into uh, Red Charles Foundation. But yeah, was that's it a tough decision to make? It wasn't. It wasn't at all. It, was, it wasn't a tough decision. It was only tough for my parents and maybe family members who thought I was doing so well in Philips. I was at the brink of a new promotion. I was thriving and it was such a prestigious, you know, brand to work with. But it, it wasn't a problem for me at all. I was just ready to see what I wanted to do with, you know, the, the policy development side of my work. And yeah, I, I knew that. Let me tell you what I was sure of. And I don't know how I became sure of it. I knew that if I cracked that part of my interests, and I still feel that way, and I've not even fully pressed into what is possible in that space, but I was certain that if I cracked this desire to fix my country and to fix my continent, all my other interests, gifts, and expressions will actually take a leap because I believed that... Um, that part of me was a was an anchor for my for my corporate identity and what I could become. I don't know why I felt that way, but it was really strong in my mind. In just a moment, we'd explore how DDK started Ideation Hub Africa, her general life lessons, mistakes and challenges, as well as how she's been able to manage all her responsibilities. 
Hi, dear listener. If you love our show, please leave us a review on iTunes and Apple Podcast. You can also send us a tweet or comment on Instagram at OriginsAF. We love to read from you. Nope, not later. Yes, I read your mind. Do it now. Thanks a lot. Also click the subscribe button and share with a friend. Let's make a difference together, one origin story at a time. Hi guys, welcome back to Origins Africa podcast. So in 2015, DDK decided to launch Ideation Hub Africa. Why? Just because um, my discovery from the program um, at Pan-Atlantic University was very startling. My discovery was that I I was going to be wasting my giftings if I just stepped into the space as another nonprofit professional, right? Because when I was in that room, I saw very passionate, altruistic individuals who were working to change the social sector, working in communities, education, healthcare, energy and environment, gender advocacy, but they were struggling with things like their performance-driven procedures, operating like with a business orientation, uh, their capacity to get funding because it was connected to their structure, their processes. And coming from a place like Philips gave me a reference point for how to really build an organization that would be agile enough to really take on bigger challenges in society. So sitting in that room, that was my conclusion. And every time I spoke, I'd have people come to me after class saying, DDK, please, can you help us structure our NGO? Obviously, you know, we're not even ready to scale um, the impact that we have. How can we do more? How can we, you know, create templates and build the right processes and systems within the work? So I started to see that the way I could contribute to the sector was more around becoming an aggregator, creating a hub where I can deliver, um, you know, um, something that could be like, that could mimic an accelerator model where I can offer enterprise incubation, education, um, you know, and prepare these nonprofit professionals and social entrepreneurs to elevate their impact, host those conferences, create those mentorship meetings. And that's why I started Ideation Hub. Okay. Did you quit Erectiles Foundation? Not immediately. Um, I still continue to work with them while Ideation Hub was in the early stages. And I had the support of the, um, the founder of the business, uh, you know, where the foundation was, the foundation was an Aspen mandated foundation. So yeah, you know, there was a lot that was getting done without even being physically present. So I was still able to merge the work for a while before Ideation Hub now obviously needed me in full. And then I transited fully into it. And since then to now, how has it grown? Honest truth is I feel like Ideation Hub has enormous potential that we have not even scratched the surface. We've grown uh, a community across the globe of maybe about 6,000 entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, innovators, tech startup owners. We've held thought leadership conferences. Um, We have an ongoing, you know, learning immersion that is quite exciting, a six-week boot camp. And we're looking to reach 10,000 practitioners. They're registering. It's starting next month. We've held several, you know, meetings. We've had growth advisory clinics. So, yes, you know, but I feel like we're still doing a drop in the ocean uh, because of the enormity of the work that has to get done. And I'm just looking out for how we can be better positioned to be the voice and the hub that practitioners in the third sector in Africa can come to rely on for the right resources and the right um, ecosystem. So looking through your journey now, looking back, what would you say, what, what stands out as a big failure in your journey? A big failure? Yes. A big failure, like overall in my life? Yes, overall. Now I have left the specific of each and I'm now talking generally no. the, the next set of questions. Mm-hmm. A big failure. 
So because I pick up the lessons really fast before things spiral out of hand, I don't know about a big failure, but I can mention three things that I started to learn early that I can do better. The first would be um, creating the systems that allow the work get done without you. I didn't learn that early, so I've had severe seasons of burnout that wasn't needed. And you know when you burn out, you lose time because you need to regroup and circle back to start again. True. True. Yep. So yeah, yeah, I learned that late, but thank God I've picked my memo and I'm on it. Um, the second would be telling my story better. Uh, I used to think that it was... It was just too self-promoting to be very obvious about the great work that uh, one is doing with the different expressions I have. But it was just recent I started to say, hey, maybe in the last one, two years, I said, maybe just one year ago, I started to say, how can I have built, you know, this, this, gosh, I, I don't even want to, because I still have that discomfort. Imagine, just as I wanted to start to tell you these things, I'm still feeling like, hey, don't blow your trumpet. But there's an important part of telling one story because if people don't even know that you're the one they need, how are they going to gravitate toward you? Um, I am the um, I am the needed person for a lot of policy conversations because of the caliber of competency-driven preparations that have gone into building Ideation Hub as well as partnering with institutions locally and internationally. But yeah, I probably won't put that in the papers. I probably won't even really put that in the website. And I now I'm starting to see that it's a failure um, that can hinder one's ability to deliver value at the next level. Could it maybe be imposter syndrome? No, it's not. It is not for me. I don't feel like... Yeah, I actually don't feel underutilized. When people heal me or hype me, I feel like, no, I've not even started. So I don't feel like people, I could see something about myself out there and feel like, hmm, is this really me? Me that, no, actually never. <laughs> I feel like there's still so much more to become and to do. And I'm the woman for the job. Um, but yeah, it's, it's one weird humility that I don't even know. <laughs> so I consider that something that I will do better with because it's in the interest of my continent to know me and to gravitate in my direction. A third one will be maybe in the past connected to the first as well. I maybe have missed out on some opportunities to just enjoy life uh, because I was busy being a workaholic. Um, but I think that I've caught myself actively in the last three to five years. But between 2012, 13 to 2015, I was riding roughshod, just getting results and pushing myself beyond measure. And yeah, I think my health suffered at a time and I maybe missed out on some nice opportunities to connect with people as well, but that's not going to be anymore. So those would be three top highlights um, that I definitely have caught myself on. Okay. Dwelling on your last point, how have you been able to balance all you do? Because I know there was a time where after you gave birth to your first daughter, you had felt your life was literally in a turmoil and you yep. could not find an nexus to hold it mm-hmm. all together. Mm-hmm. So how could you talk about that moment, what it felt like mm-hmm. and what helped you through yeah, so that would be around that 2012 to 15. So you're accurate in your highlight. Um, and what had happened was, remember, this was around the time I had uh, started Ideation Hub, around the time I had started Immerse Coaching, around the time I had now fully gotten into the work with Deborah Initiative for Women. By this time, I'd written maybe six books. I was speaking at so many places, even though I probably won't put it up, but I was in different conferences, speaking and all of that. I was also still consulting for Philips. I was also still consulting for Rep Charles Foundation. Um, So yeah, and then I just had a baby. Uh, By 2015, I was pregnant again, you know, and I was just like in a whirlwind that was spinning out of control. Um, What wasn't falling on the floor was the work, but many other things were falling. So you can look at me on the outside and be like, wow, she's acing it, you're getting results. But so many other things were just tripping on themselves. Um, And I came to that moment when, how did I come to that moment? I had had a sense of it very clearly, but it became super, super apparent 
when I had lost a loved one and I was looking back on the relationship I had with her and feeling like we could have been closer, you know, and really regretting how I didn't maximize the love we shared and, and you know, just yeah, beating myself up. So it, it awakened me to start to say, um, you can't live like this. You know, you can't live like this. You can't, you can't trade the things that truly count in your life just because you're being a multi-gifted entrepreneur or whatever that is. So how did I catch myself? Well, I didn't catch myself in one moment, but I set up a series of things that started to gradually help me you know, rebuild my life or redesign my life. And it showed maybe about six months to one year after that I now settled into a new life system that was allowing me to focus on my priorities as well as, you know, engage on multiple fronts as far as the things that were important to me. Okay. So do you so, want to talk about the things that I did? Yes, please. Um, um, as briefly as possible. <laughs> okay, I'm going to try. It's not a brief matter. So I'm going to highlight three things specifically. Okay. Three things that helped. The first thing that helped was I made my husband and a few important relationships in my life as my accountability partners. I had those conversations with my husband where I was even apologizing to him for not being present enough. And I was like, oh no, Oh, babe, you're doing amazing. You're here. I know. I said, eh, 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 eh. That's not the kind of wife I want to be. I'm the one who, who knows that vision of who I want to be to you. So I'm saying I'm not present enough and don't try to make it easy and be like, you're doing well. Mm-mm. So that was one. Um, I had those conversations where I started to paint a picture of the adjustments I wanted to make in my life. And I was asking those I loved and respected to, take, to hold me accountable. Um, the second thing I did was... I literally went through, and it's not something I can even share right now, but I, I w- is it fine to lead people to a certain resource that is a game changer? Yes, it's fine. Uh-huh. So the second thing was I re- I literally revamped, retweaked, rejigged my productivity system. And that's a whole elaborate formation around your scheduling, you know, your priority actions, your urgent actions, your 80-20 actions, when you will do them, how often, you know, everything around even getting myself and uh, an intern PA at the time. And people were laughing like, uh-uh, you don't get PA. But yeah, and then using technology, I revamped. It took a while to implement, but I changed my scheduling. I wrote out every single thing. I did a brain dumping over days and weeks of every single thing I usually would do my tasks. And then I started to break them into what can be done by others. And Michael Hyde is my virtual mentor on my productivity journey. And I just encourage you to check him out. He changed my life, literally, and is still changing my life. Um, So I did that. And I started to work within stringent new schedules, life systems, what I was prioritizing. And when I would do it, what I calendarized and when I would do it, you know, I thought it would make me like a zombie, but it actually freed me up to be a human being because I knew what I was supposed to do at the time. And I knew how it could give me time to visit friends, to be out there, to have fun. It changed my life. I think it's a visionary's biggest investment or one of the visionary's biggest investment. You've got to crack your own productivity system or else you become a victim to, you know, the vision you're trying to serve. And the third thing was um, I invested in the right support system for sure. (laughs) I got myself a PA, um, you know, I got a car in 2015 when I stopped having an official car. You know, I prioritized it. I didn't say, oh, this is expensive. It's eating into my savings. I knew that I needed it. I needed it desperately, and I worked at that. Um, and then I, st- I also got new caregivers at home and started to invest in their training. I clone my caregivers. That's something I do. I clone them. You know, I clone them so much that if I'm not home, I know what they'll be doing at a certain time. There are no ambiguities with the work they're supposed to be doing or how they're supposed to be helping out. And then I also started to leverage my own parents, family members, friends, and I started to invest in those relationships um, so that I could also withdraw when I needed it. 
So I have a support system. I have places my kids can go that I know they will have clean content, clean conversations and enjoy themselves and have fun when I want to, I want to take them out of the home without being scared that they're going to interact with things I won't be proud of you basically. So it's a deep, deep conversation. I can spend three hours talking about this one, but those are three big highlights that um, sort of started to really help me make the adjustments. Would you ascribe your success to luck or to your hard work, skills, and talents? So I don't even consider myself successful. That would be a tough question to answer. Honestly, maybe I don't your know achievements. Uh, okay, so maybe achievements. <laughs> uh, do I, I ascribe my achievements to God. And I don't mean that in a cliche way. I don't mean to sound religious. I ascribe it to God. What I mean by that is God knows what he's put on my inside. But if he didn't show me what he's put on my inside, I would have been an underutilized person. So I'm not saying I haven't put in the work, but I've put in the work in the right direction. And that is the big plus. There are people more hardworking than me, but who maybe don't currently have my outcomes. And I pray they get where God wants them to get and all of that. And it's not to sound better or anything. It's just to say, really, I'm not stressed out. I do heavyweight work, but it's heavyweight work that hits the bullseye, if you see what I mean. And that is because God is my coach. So there are many things I could be doing with each of my businesses. It can be overwhelming, but in each season, he's the one who tells me the ball to juggle. I'm telling you, he'll be like, focus on this one. Toba get a lay, <laughs> and when I it's get me. that one, I'm, I truly get results. Yeah. How do you unwind? How do I unwind? So I'm a boring person. That's we thought what you said. <laughs> I don't know if you're boring. You know, my husband thinks I'm not boring, but I think I am. But anyway, uh, my primary way of unwinding is solitude. That's why I think I'm boring. I have to be alone to recover. If I'm not alone, you can't really enjoy me. You have to let me be alone. That's that's how I unwind. I sit in my study. It's also like a sanctuary. I put on the AC, put off the lights. I turn on my candles. They give me fragrant ambience, you know, and I listen to worship. And I just, I have to be there alone. I listen to uh, an audio track of the confessions I've created and voiced recorded. I just have to be alone. Sometimes I take my kids out of the house so I won't even hear anybody's sound. <laughs> so I do that. And sometimes I actually go to um, hotels. God bless Oriental Hotel, you know. Um, yeah, and if you order hotels like that, and I just stay alone. I have to be alone. Yeah, that's, are, that's a big are, are the confessions some of the daily habits that you've incorporated to help absolutely, you? Absolutely. So that's under the whole productivity system. I couldn't break down. I have a daily system of what I do when I wake up, when I start my day from 4.30 or 5 a.m., the podcast I'll listen to, my exercise, the confessions I'll make, you know, yeah, and the, the things I'll fill into my log about mindset I'm embracing, how I'm winning today, and why I will get conquest no matter what. Yeah, so those sort of things. Okay. Advice to listeners? Advice to listeners, find your journey. And when you find your journey and what works for you, don't let anybody lure you out of it. Social media is both a blessing and a curse. You've got to determine that it will bless you and curse you. And one of the ways you do that is don't fall into the herd mentality, which is really trying to do everything everybody says is the new big thing that is working. Some of the things that will lead you to your success will be um, things you've uncovered historically and you stay with it. It's your own personal hack. You don't need to explain it to anyone. Um, but if it works for you, stay with it. The second thing will be when you have a mission, don't seek permission, just go do it. What of those who don't know how to find their journey? Yeah, so get a coach. That's just what it is. Get a coach. A coach will help you read the label of the box you're in. And if you're still part of those who think, I don't need a coach, I'm good by myself. Okay, good for you. Get a coach, get a mentor, and set yourself in an exponential community. So look for communities where their current reality is your anticipated future. You will get closer to where you're going. You will get greater clarity. So those would be things to do. Get yourself a coach. And if you can't afford a coach, get yourself into coaching programs that elevate new thinking in your life. But ensure that you are brokering knowledge and interacting with the kind of truth that can show you what you didn't know. Because if you know better, you will do better. 
if you were in my shoes, what would you ask yourself that I've not asked you? Um, I would ask myself my age. <laughs> uh, what's your answer? <laughs> I don't intend to answer you. I'm just saying I get asked all the time. <laughs> okay, well, you're supposed to answer, so you would answer. Okay, um, this year I clocked 36. Great, great, great. Who would you like me to interview next? I'd like you to interview either John Obidu or Adora Mbelu. That's Debola Dejikoromi, fondly called DDK. She's the president and founder of the Deborah Initiative for Women, executive director of Ideation Hub Africa, founder and CEO of Immerse Coaching Company, as well as the resident pastor, together with her husband, of the baptizing church in Lekki, Lagos. Thank you for listening to our show this week. If you liked it, do leave us a review, a comment, and share with your friends. Tell a friend to tell a friend to tell a friend and to tell another friend. We would also love to read from you. So please do send us a tweet or leave a comment on Instagram at OriginsAF. You can also write to us at OriginsAfricaPodcast at gmail.com. Remember, do subscribe at wherever you get your podcast. Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, amongst others. Join us next time as we have a chat with Emmanuel Taffa. Emmanuel is a partner at Enzo Krypton and Company Limited, a management consulting firm. Our sound producer this week was Tumisha Jani, and the theme song was composed by Just Ritimi. I'm Oshaya, and you've been listening to Origins Africa podcast. Bye for now. My father told me life is not a bit of roses. You gotta put your way to the plow, do the work to smell the roses. Don't back down. Mm-hmm. Whatever you do, don't back down. When things get tight, keep the drive, keep the faith, stay in. Stories for